You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City, and I'm so excited for this teaching series. This has been one uh, that I've thought about, prayed about, and specifically today's sermon uh, is really a, a keystone part of this teaching series, Exiles. Uh, I've been reading a book this new year called Faith for Exiles uh, by David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock, and the introduction of the book, which just, to be honest, I don't always read the introduction of books. I just want to like get to the content, get to the material, and uh, this one, it's not called the introduction, it just says, start here, and it tricked me. It's like, ah, I got to... It says I have to start there, you know, so I, I read the introduction, and uh, the introduction is really this story that, that hooked me. Uh, it's one of the authors, David, driving his daughter, Emily, to college for her freshman year at University of California, Berkeley. Now, I don't know if you know much about Berkeley, uh, the university. It's a stronghold for progressive ideology. It shows up in the news from time to time. It's one of those kind of cultural machines. And, uh, and it's difficult when you send your kids to college. Uh, I've shared this statistic from Barna Research Group before, but the number of church dropouts, it's called. This is kids who grew up in church uh, from the years of 18 years old to 29 years old has been going up. In 2011, they found that about 59%, which is already incredibly high, would walk away from faith, would walk away from the church during their college or young adult years. And that number has not been going down. It actually has been going up. In 2019, when they uh, reviewed that study, they found that it was 64%. This is kids in our children's ministry, students in our youth group, right? This is a serious problem of non-discipleship. This is a signal for the future. And if anyone should know that statistic from Barna, it's David Kinnaman who, by the way, is the president of the Barna Research Group. You see the irony here. And it's this, to me at least, very compelling story of he's driving his daughter to Berkeley. And I have three young daughters. And he's trying to cram in any last-minute parenting and discipleship advice on the way. Like, don't do drugs and stay away from this, right? And he's, he's trying, and, and he's wondering, have I done enough? And I couldn't help but think about the future. I will be in a car one day, and I will drop my daughter off to school for the last time. I'll have to do that at least three times for my three daughters. And... And I will wonder that same question. Will I have done enough to help disciple my children in the way of Jesus, to cultivate a resilient faith? This is a question we must wrestle with, not only as parents, but also as followers of Jesus ourselves. What about you? What about your practices? What about your rule of life? What about your own discipleship to Jesus? Will it be able to withstand the world? 
We looked at a chart last week. Let me remind you of it. This chart uh, shows that really in exile, in these moments where we are at least uh, a cognitive minority, most people tend to land on one of two extremes, two opposite errors. Uh, One is separation. That's we don't want to be contaminated by the world, so we won't interact with the world. And uh, last week, uh, the teaching was from Jeremiah 29, and uh, it, that really was speaking kind of against that posture, that we're not captives, we're not victims, we're actually sent by God on mission into the world. So we, we have to learn how to pray for Babylon, how to put down roots in Babylon, and how to bless Babylon. And uh, for some of you, last week you were like, amen, and you, you were just like all about it. This week we're talking about the opposite error, which is syncretism. That's to let too much of the world into your soul, to allow yourself to be formed primarily by the world. And uh, this week might be a little bit more challenging for you, just to be honest, cards on the table. The question of the day is, how do you bless Babylon without becoming Babylonian? I've said it like this before. How do you love the world? We're called, like God loves the world, with a heart of compassion, caring about the world, wishing the well-being, wishing the best for the world. How do you love the world without falling in love with the world? Worldliness. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, in James 4.4, says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we have to be really careful as we go into the world and we, we put down roots and we pray for and we bless that we don't end up becoming Babylonian ourselves. Our teaching text will be Daniel chapter 1. We'll be in Daniel 1 the whole time today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up. We're going to jump in the first couple verses, find out some context where we're at in history. Daniel 1.1. 1, 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, does that sound familiar? Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, the house of his God, and placed vessels in the treasury with his God. A little bit of a review from last week, in case you missed it. There's three important dates. 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar was the very first time he besieged Jerusalem. That was under King Jehoiakim. 597, it was Jehoiachin. That was the the major deportation. It was most of the people of Jerusalem were shipped off to Babylon. And then 586, under King Zedekiah, was the decimation of the city. It was the, the walls were destroyed and the city is in flames. So, last week in Jeremiah 29, a little bit of a pop quiz for you if you're here last week. Which one of those did Jeremiah 29 take place in? Do you remember? Does anyone remember? It was in 597. It was the second attack. So we're actually rewinding a little bit. This is taking place in 605. This is not the entire city has been shipped off into Babylon. This is only a select few teenagers, the best and the brightest. And we're going to look at... Babylon's cultural reconditioning program. Let's continue through our text. It's a little bit of a longer passage, so hang with me. Daniel 1, verse 3, continuing. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, 
his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. The title of today's sermon is cultural indoctrination. That's a little bit of a clickbait title, by the way. It's, it's a little bit of a shocking title. Uh, I picked the titles for the sermon, so. But it's intentional, though. What we read here in Daniel chapter 1 was a common strategy of empires when they would conquer and capture nations. Andrew Hill, Old Testament scholar, says it like this. This training or education was essentially a programmatic indoctrination of the captives in the worldview of a conquering nation. So here's the strategy. Here's why they would do that. Let's take some of the nobles. Let's take, you know, the sixth in line for the throne. Let's take some of the youths and let's train them. Yes, they're Hebrew, but let's convert them so that they become, in essence, Babylonian. And then that way, they can serve in our courts. We build a little bit of rapport or favor with the people that we just, by the way, killed a bunch of them and burned their city and took their treasury earn a little bit of favor back. See, we, we have some of you in politics, in government. Or what you could also do is, if you are confident enough that you've really brainwashed one of these guys, you could send them back and place them as a puppet king in the conquered land. That's the strategy. It was a very common strategy. So this, we have to read this and understand this isn't some benevolent Nebuchadnezzar's given full ride scholarships to these guys. It's not just like, here's some free food and free education. Isn't Babylon great? He's not trying to win them over. He's trying to turn them Babylonian. This is cultural indoctrination. Now, we're in obviously a different situation. We haven't been deported. We haven't been conquered in a political sense. And yet our indoctrination, I believe, is is primarily digital. In Faith for Exiles, this is what uh, Kinnaman and Matlock say. They say, if a literal Babylon were around today, the internet would certainly be in the imperial toolbox. And insofar as we thoughtlessly consume whatever content comes our way, we'd be cheerful participants in our own colonization. Even without a literal empire knocking on our door, many of us are willingly held captive. That is hauntingly offensive, isn't it? Is it true? We're being indoctrinated. The, the, The primary tool of the world today is your smartphone. It's Netflix. It's YouTube. It's social media. It is digital. Babylon has gone digital, and the world has gone viral. And we see four steps 
It's a calculated process in Daniel 1. So we're going to look at the text. We're going to identify these four steps, if you're taking notes, of cultural indoctrination and see if we can find some similarities to what we experience in our world today. Step number one, if you're taking notes. I'm going to speak really fast today. The sermon's long, okay? And I'm going to try. I thought about New Year's resolutions, shorter sermons, and then I didn't say that's a New Year's resolution because I was like, who am I kidding, okay? Step one, isolate you from community. Can everyone say isolate? The very first step of cultural indoctrination. You can't do it in Jerusalem. You've got to take the youths out of their context. You've got to cut ties with their family of origin, with their most significant community. This is the line. Bring some of the youth out of Israel. You've got to isolate them from community. Divide and conquer is the oldest trick in the book. According to a 2020 study by Cigna Health Group, 73% of Gen Z uh, workers, people in the workplace, feel lonely some or all of the time. Gen Z has been called the loneliest generation, and ironically, Gen Z is also the most digitally connected generation. So we have all these tools for connection. We have social, what's it called? Social media. We have FaceTime and message. You can get in contact. You can get in touch with people. Why is it that our technology has actually resulted in one of the loneliest generations that has ever been seen on planet Earth? See, what happens is you feel lonely, and so you, you, you want that quick dopamine hit. So you scroll on social media, and you watch other people presenting their best selves having the time of their lives, and now you have FOMO, fear of missing out, and you worry that your life isn't as good as everyone else's life, and why aren't you there? And you know, th- no, I didn't get as many likes on the post that I thought, and no one's commenting, and does anyone even care about me, right? And so we have this, it, it, it almost compounds and increases the amount of loneliness that we feel. Not only are we alone, but we are surrounded by everybody's doing it mentality. And so it's not just enough to pull the youth out of Jerusalem. They're now in Babylon. They're surrounded by a different culture that's telling them different things. And so uh, one, of the, one of the ways we see this, by the way, is I know deconstruction is a buzzword uh, the last few years in church where people are wrestling with essentially questions, uh, doubts, church hurt, that sort of thing, which, by the way, is nothing new, people wrestling with that stuff. But here's what I see a trend towards someone wrestling with that and say, I just, just give me some space while I just deconstruct. Have you seen this? Just let me be alone with my phone while I deconstruct. What's, hap- what's that? That's step one. And I can tell you that is a recipe for disaster. I'm not saying don't wrestle with doubts, don't wrestle with questions, but don't do it alone. Don't do it apart from the community of God. Step one, isolate you from community. Step two, tell you different stories. Everyone say stories. Step one, isolate. Step two is stories. Teach them the literature and the language of Babylon. Now, they've got to learn the language. They've got to learn Akkadian at some point because they live in a different place. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But this is the key. Make sure they learn our stories. Bobette Buster, who's a writer and producer, she says, narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. Not he who tells the most true story. You see that? He who tells the best story, 
the most believable story, the most intriguing story. Babylon had their own stories. We know this from archaeology. We know this from history. They found uh, stone tablets with Enuma Elish, which is a creation myth. There are even some similarities to Genesis chapter 1. But in Enuma Elish, essentially, the world is created after a battle between the gods. And there's a lot of killing of each other. And eventually, uh, Marduk, the, uh, the chief god in uh, Babylonian mythology, wins. And then there's this idea, let's create slaves for the gods. And so they create humans. And so in this creation myth, it's actually teaching people about their identity, their value, and whom they're supposed to serve. So the only people who aren't considered slaves in Babylonian culture would have been the kings and the elites, which would have been great if you were one of the elites brought over from Jerusalem. By the way, you guys get to be the ones who everyone else was made as a slave. You can see how this is changing their identity a little bit. It's a counter story than the story of scripture. And we listen to a lot of stories online, don't we? Here's another statistic I found uh, reading this book, Faith for Exiles, from a study from Barna. This is, uh, this is teenagers today on their annual screen media consumption, okay? Annual screen media consumption for teenagers today was 2,767 hours using screen media compared to, the second number is church-going teenagers, on taking in any kind of spiritual content. So compare 2,767 to 291 hours taking in spiritual content. Now spiritual content, part of that category, is going to church, reading the Bible, praying, listening to or reading Christian content, or talking about faith. So essentially, anything spiritual, right? Just do the math. Which story's gonna win? For a teenager who literally is listening to the stories of the world almost exactly 10 times more frequently than engaging at all with the story God is trying to tell them in their lives. Netflix is changing you. Amen. It's changing you. It's forming you. It's a story. And I'm not even talking necessarily about explicit content, although, right, you have to be careful about that, mindful about that. It's the stories it's the stories that we believe. Which story do you believe is the most true? Step one, isolate. Step two, stories. Step three, compromise your morals. Everyone say compromise. This is the daily portion of the food that the king ate. Now, you might ask the question, what's the problem with food? Okay, what's the problem? Why is this some kind of way that Daniel and his friends are being asked to compromise? There's at least three thoughts. It could be one of these or, or, or likely maybe even a mix of these. First of all, you might be aware uh, to be uh, an Israelite is to belong to the old covenant and there's dietary restrictions in the covenant. You can read more about these in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 12. Obviously, a Babylonian king is not considering the Hebrew dietary restrictions when he's setting out the menu, right? So that's pretty obvious. Okay, so there's a compromise on keeping the covenant, which is probably the main one. Uh, royal food also likely would have been associated with pagan idol worship in some way. 
You see this even in the New Testament, the controversy about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. So there's already compromising on keeping the covenant, compromising on eating meat that's possibly sacrificed to idols. And the third thing is one of the uh, most ancient ways of showing fellowship with someone is to eat a meal with them. Significantly, this is a meal from the king's table. And so possibly this is just, in Daniel's eyes, too close to be, you know, being in fellowship with the king essentially. So there's three issues there. For us, obviously, I've never been offered a scrap of food from a king's table, okay? So this is not a a clear tie-on, and yet you just ask the question, where have you been tempted to compromise? Because we might say the question, well, what's the big deal? It's just food, right? You got to eat. I mean, by the way, you're kind of a prisoner in Babylon. You're kind of a slave here. Why don't you just eat what? Well, beggars can't be choosers. You know, why, why don't you just eat whatever they set before you? And we, we might ask similar things like, what's the big deal? It's just another drink. We're already dating. What's the big deal if we sleep together? What's the harm in a little white lie? I mean, I'm already, you know, I'm watching this TV show for the storyline. <laughs> I know it's gossip, but everybody knows anyways, right? What's the big deal if I just spread it one step further? And so what happens is, you see this with the stories, change your beliefs. Number th- step three, compromise your morals, st- change your behavior. And there's one more step. You ready if you're taking notes? Step four, change your identity. Everyone say identity. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Now, in the ancient world especially, important to keep in mind when we read scripture, your name is not just your name. It's not just what people call you. It's key to your character. It's core to your identity. And in some cases, leads to your destiny, like what you were made for, your purpose in life. So significantly, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have really good Hebrew names, And they are changed into names that represent Babylonian deities. Let's go ahead and look at each one. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. And his name is changed to Belteshazzar, which is Bel, Babylonian God, protects his life. Hananiah, God is gracious. His name is changed to Shadrach, I am fearful of Aku, another Babylonian God. Mishael, who is God, is changed to Meshach, who is Aku. And then Azariah, God is my help, uh, is changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo. Do you see what's happening here? Interestingly, Daniel goes by Daniel <laughs> the rest of the book. And uh, once again, we're not necessarily assigned names by culture, but I just can't help but think about, for us, the temptation is not for someone else to give you a name or a label. It's actually, you are told that you can be whatever you want to be. Make a name for who? Make a name for yourself. What's the most true title, the most true identity for you? What do you feel like it is? And for, depending on the person, it might be their job title, and that's what they their go by. It might be the fact that they're a student or an athlete. Interestingly, with social media, you literally, at any given moment, can change your username. Literally, creating a name for yourself. Someone might not even know you if they've only friended you on social media. They might not even know your given name because you're using a username. In games, there's gamer tags. It's the same thing. And I can't help but think about the modern tie-in to someone changing their pronouns and changing their gender identity to what they identify as. We were never meant to handle 
the immense pressure of creating our own identities. And yet the world is telling us that that is the key to the good life. Now, those are the four steps, you got them? Let me just ask this question, who could withstand this kind of pressure? Who could, who could thrive in exile? Who could survive this kind of pressure? Who could send their daughter to Berkeley knowing the stats of how difficult it is in just a normal college setting, right? Let alone a cultural hotspot like that. And yet in uh, Faith for Exiles, Kinnaman and Matlocks, they say this, I think it's so important for us, the roots of faithfulness often sink deeper in anxious, unsettled times. Faith can grow even, and sometimes especially, in the darkest of places. So to answer that question, who could withstand this kind of pressure? I'll tell you who, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they could. And that is why Daniel is such a helpful guide to us today. So what did they do? How did Daniel put up with this, these four steps? I mean, they had to know, that, like, they're trying to make us Babylonian here. What are we going to do? So what I have is, I don't just have the bad news of these are four steps that you're gonna experience of cultural indoctrination in digital Babylon. Happy Sunday, have a great week, right? I've got four counter practices, okay? So I've got four counter practices for what I call creative nonconformity. We've gotta learn how to find creative ways not to conform to the pattern of this world. Or you might just know it as what Jesus calls it, discipleship to Jesus. So what Daniel does is he actually comes up with this creative, innovative, non-conformative idea. He goes to Ashburn as the chief of the eunuchs and he says, well, how about this? Let's do a diet contest. It's like a clinical trial. We have the rest of the, the youth, they can eat the king's table food, but for me and my friends, just give us water and vegetables. And after 10 days, get us together, and if they're healthier than we are, then we'll, you know, we'll conform. But if not, can you let us refrain from eating, from, from non-compromising uh, on our morals, essentially? So they do the 10-day trial, and surprise, surprise, the people who ate vegetables for 10 days were healthier, and all the vegans said, amen. <laughs> and it was just like, no, but there, there's, it, say, it actually says they were, they bulked up. So there is an element, like that's not, if you want to bulk up, eating only vegetables and drinking water is not necessarily... The best diet. So there's God's favor here. Do you see that? This isn't just, by the way, it's not even meant to be like a healthy diet, you know, like, I want to go on a diet. Let's read Daniel and see what he did. This is, it's, it's, it's divine, uh, divine grace here in this moment. And he's able to. Now, initially, when he asked this request to not eat, uh, Ashpenaz is like, I'm gonna get executed for even doing this. So there's danger here, there's risk involved, and yet Daniel and his friends come out on top and God blesses them. And at the end of the three years, they're actually better presentable than any of the other uh, youths that came out of Jerusalem. So here's our counter practices that we can learn from Daniel. Counter practice number one is connect with the church. 
Fill out your Connect card, please. Daniel is in exile, but he's not alone in exile. You see this? He's in exile, but he doesn't try to figure it out by himself. He doesn't try to figure it out with Google. He figures it out with his friends. Daniel 1.19, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, this is after uh, the, the uh, three-year period, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. So the, the story of Daniel is not actually the story of Daniel. It's the story of Daniel and his friends. Significantly, he forms even like a sub-community among the already small community of the youth. Now, Babylon gets to some of the youth, but not to these four, because these four had this intense, you, you gotta imagine they're praying with one another. You gotta imagine they're talking, like wrestling with these cultural issues. Is it okay to watch this new show? I don't know, what do you think, right? And they're actually getting together and talking about relevant ways of how to be faithful to God in their day and in their context. Connect with the church. Everyone say, connect. Babylon is trying to isolate you. So what are we gonna do to counter that? We have to connect. Now, it starts by going to church. Do you realize that? It starts by going to church. All of the, the studies up until 2020 and even in 2020 were showing declining church attendance. I actually saw a Barna study this week that was saying that especially millennials in 2022, there's been a huge increase in, uh, in church attendance. Let's go millennials, come on. That's, that's me, okay, that's my generation. And uh, I remember having a conversation with a pastor at the very beginning of all the shutdowns during uh, the, the COVID pandemic. And he said, I just, I'm a, I hope that people have a hunger for community. And we actually see people, you know, in waves like coming back to church and wanting to be part of community. And we didn't see it, did we? We might be starting to see it now, two years later. Like, it's starting now, I say it starts of going to church. It, it cannot stay with church attendance alone. Don't just go to church, connect with people. Connect with people. Uh, find ways to contribute, to be part of other people's lives. Find ways to uh, be discipled by someone who's more mature. Find ways to help others grow in their discipleship. Join a serving team. Join a life group. Uh, it starts by going to church, but then don't just, go to, don't just go to church, right? Be the church. Connect with the community. That's uh, counter practice number one. Counter practice number two is immerse yourself in God's story. Everyone say God's story. God has been telling a story since the beginning of time. What's interesting about Daniel is if now, we don't know exactly how old Daniel is, but he's a teenager for sure. We know they're youths, whatever that means, right? Between 13 and 16 years old. Let's say that Daniel's 16 years old in the third year of King Jehoiakim, so 606 BC. That means if you reverse the dates there, he was born somewhere around 522 BC. Would you like to know what significant event took place in 520, or sorry, 622 BC? That's the 18th year of King Josiah's reign when he entered the temple and they rediscovered the, the law. So Daniel would have at most been newborn, maybe he would have been born a few years later, but Daniel's parents 
were part of the national revivals led by King Josiah. Do you see this? How you disciple your kids matters. Are you telling your kids the most true story of them all? Do they know scripture, right? And so Daniel's parents made sure that Daniel grew up on a healthy portion of God's word consistently. See, Babylon has a Numa Elish. Genesis 1 tells us a different story. Humans are not created as slaves to be conquered, to be taken, to be killed. Humans are created in the image of who? Of God. Every single human being, by the way, is created in the image of God. Even Babylonians are created in the image of God, and they're destined to spread God's goodness and his glory throughout the world. That's a rival storyline. It's a rival narrative, and we have to be immersed in the full story of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Colossians 3.16 says it like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, would you be so saturated with God's word that when you're talking to one another, it just flows out of you. It comes out of you in in your conversation. It comes out of you in what you post online. Jesus said, What comes out of your mouth? Where does it come from ultimately? It's the overflow of your heart. And we've got to learn to equalize those numbers a little bit more on the amount of time we're spending on screens, listening to, and I'm not even saying that everyone in here is watching crazy explicit stuff on your phones or your TVs. It's not even just about the sinfulness or the explicit nature of those uh, things that we're consuming. There's storylines that are less true than the story that God is telling about who you are, about the world, about his... And you can repurpose your digital devices as tools for discipleship. Do Do you do this? You can delete certain apps that you waste time on. You can add certain apps. You can read scripture. You can listen to prayers and meditations. You can repurpose those as digital devices, as tools for discipleship. So we're gonna connect with the church. We're gonna immerse in God's story. Number three, we're gonna resolve to be faithful. Everyone say faithful. Faithful. This is where Daniel says, enough is enough. I'll learn your stories. I'll learn your language but you wanna try to make me compromise on covenant faithfulness to the Lord my God? And he he says enough is enough and he draws a line. And he says, this is a line that I am unwilling to cross. Even if I get killed, isn't it just food? Even if I get killed, I refuse to eat that food. And he finds a creative way to do nonconformity and he wins, actually, and God gives him favor because of it. But he, set, he knows where the line is, and he knows where God is not calling him to cross it. In Daniel 1.8, look at this. But Daniel, everyone say that next word. He resolved. Call them New Year's resolutions, right? It's, this, it's like you decide in your heart. Crystallization of discontent is what it's called in psychological language. Enough is enough. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. How are you entertaining yourself with evil? How are you delighting in evil? How are you 
defiling your soul. One statistic that shocked me was teenagers today think that it's more ethically evil not to recycle than it is to watch pornography. That wasn't true 10 years ago. Now, I'm not like pro-pollution, okay? <laughs> we fill up our blue bin every, you know, we fill up the recycle bin, we do, we do what we're supposed to do there, and yet storylines have changed, haven't they? That teenagers today think that it's worse for there to be pollution in the environment than there is to be pollution in your soul. And we need to learn what moral compromise is again. It's why it's important to be immersed in God's story. It's why it's important to know the law of the Lord. It's why it's important to memorize scripture. How are you, how are you laughing at or entertaining yourself with or even delighting in or maybe even defiling yourself with something that God says that is over the line? And if there are areas, areas that the Holy Spirit is convicting you in today, repent. If you've been unfaithful to God, repent. Turn away from those things. Give up those things. Maybe you haven't resolved to be faithful before today, but if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, today can be the day that you actually draw the line where God wants that line to be drawn and you repent. You turn away from evil and you turn towards God. And the good news of the gospel is that God is so willing to forgive you of your sins that he sent his one and only son to die for you on the cross and to be raised back to life so that you could, not just at one point in time when you're saved, but that you could at any moment when you turn away from sin, you could experience the washing and regeneration and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. Peter 1 Peter 2.24 says this, he himself, Jesus Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why did Jesus do that? Not just so that we could be forgiven. He says this, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. And maybe you've experienced some kind of initial healing of God in the gospel, but you haven't quite died to sin all the way. Today is the day that you crucify the flesh along with its passions and desires. If you've been unfaithful, repent. Turn back towards God and maybe even for you, if today's the first time and you're wondering, could I be forgiven? Jesus died on the cross so that you could be forgiven. It's his wounds, it's the crown of thorns, it's the nail in, the, in his arms and in his feet. It's, the, it's the, the flogging on his back, it's the spear in his side. Do you realize this? He did that in your place. And maybe today is the very first time that you resolve to be faithful to God. I, I wanna ask you to pray today and ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. And would you go all in? Would you, you wanna know what baptism represents? Dying to sin. Going under the water in the likeness of Christ. Dying. Leaving your old self in the grave and allowing the Holy Spirit to raise you up into a new life. If you've never been baptized and you believe the gospel, this year's the year. This year's the year for you. Learn more about baptism or sign up online at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. That's countermeasure number three, is resolve to be faithful. Number four, remember who you really are. Everyone say remember. You've got to remember who you really are. You've got to remember your core identity. You are not what you do for work. You are not your failures or your mistakes. 
You are not the amount of money that you have. You are not the possessions that you own. You are not what people say about you or the labels that you've been given over time. You are not even what the world is trying to say. You are not even what you identify as. You are not who you tell yourself you are. You are who God says you are. You're a chi- if, you're, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you've been saved by grace through faith. You're a child of God. And I wanna read to you, just as we close, from 1 Peter. By the way, Peter addresses the church as exiles, right? So this is why I keep going back to 1 Peter in this series, because it's, it's a letter to exiles in the New Testament. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, I want to just speak these words over you, okay? These are words that Peter wrote to the church to remind them. Think about these as the true story that God wants to tell you today. This is, this is a, a rival to the narrative of culture, to the narrative of Babylon, to whatever you want to call it. Let me speak these words of identity over you as a follower of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are who God says you are. Let's stand and worship him. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.